0: Hello everyone, it's March 2nd, 2021. It's a packed show this week, packed like a binary parachute. Yep, we're talking about Perseverance. Also, we got an update on the Dynetics HLS lander, as well as a quick review of some safety issues regarding NASA and UN spaceflight. So let's get to it and liftoff. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 299 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm
1: Dennis. So, uh, I know I talked about electronics last week, but I could uh, talk about a new little bit of hardware that I just bought. Mm. So, there, you're all familiar with the heart rate sensors that you strap around your chest?
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, kind of, I guess. I mean, you can put, I guess, yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah they were invented by a company called Polar and it looks like the technology is patented and and nobody else is allowed to use it other than Polar but it's it's pretty cool it runs on a 5 kilohertz frequency and it's it broadcasts your heart rate by electro like an electromagnetic field so to receive the signal you have to have a coil that can pick up the the magnetic field and so Um, we just bought my partner and I just bought a a stationary bike, like a a fairly nice stationary bike, not, um, what's a really expensive internet one, not a a Peloton, Peloton. (laughs) right, right, right. Um, and so it's got, uh, a heart rate monitor built into it. So you can, you know, display the output Hmm. of one of those straps. And my partner uses a, um, a Fitbit, but I don't have a heart rate monitor strap. So I, I literally have just been using an app on my phone that uses the camera to look at the color to do, um, um, optical pulse, not pulse oximetry, but you know, to, to count pulses in your finger. Um, and it, it kind of sucks. So I was like, okay, well, I should probably just buy one of these, uh, heart rate straps and they're like really expensive. And I was like, well, if I'm going to put that much money into it, I at least want to be able to like access that data. Myself. Um, and so it turns out that Adafruit sells a heart rate strap and an OEM polar receiver. Uh, it's just a tiny little chip with a coil, um, and, and a little logic chip. Um, and it just pulses a pin high when it detects a heart rate. And so, uh, they, they sell this whole kit for, uh, that and, and like an LED and a resistor and a little tiny protoboard. Um, but they sell this whole kit for like, uh, I don't know, 40 bucks or something. And, uh, so I picked it up and so now I'm, um, doing a little, um, Arduino project where, um, I have a nice, uh, a nice, uh, OLED screen that can display your historical heart rate and a uh, numerical heart rate output and a little heart that flashes every time it detects a heart rate, a heartbeat. And it, it's, it's fun. I, I don't need to use it to use the, the strap. I can just look at the display on the bike, but you know, I wanted to be able to do, uh, heart rate. Uh, a little heart rate monitor project just cuz it's fun.
0: <laughs> we have a little bit more information on perseverance. We have an update and this is due to bad timing last week and I guess I don't know who wrote that but I guess you mean that you know we were that yeah. we just didn't have much at the time but now we do. Yeah. Um, in fact it was probably breaking news on that same day that we recorded the podcast it, so Yeah, it
2: was the next yeah, day. They, it was a Monday uh, press conference, and we recorded yeah, yeah the day before.
0: Yeah, and specifically, I guess the first thing you want to talk about is that parachute.
1: Well, yeah. So, I mean, these are probably the wrong order. I mean, I guess the first thing we need to point out is yeah, now there's photos and video out that we didn't have access to, but very the, good videos. Yeah, the video includes, I mean, fantastic views of the of the rover and the uh, the sky crane flying away and and everything. But the parachute is, uh, notable and kind of became a thing on the internet this week. And, uh, so, so it's, you know, this typical, um, four ring parachute that, that we're familiar with, um, going to Mars. Well, and, and heck, you know, here on earth, like, uh, NIAID basically did the same thing. And so it, it has these kind of broken colors. When you think about like a three parachute system, um, I think Dragon might do it, but also, uh, Orion does it. Each of the parachutes has a distinct color pattern, uh, so that you can identify which parachute is which in, in your data collecting efforts, I guess. I was going to say in case of failure, but you probably, uh, probably would always like to be able to identify, uh, which parachute is which. Um, and in this case, it's just a single parachute, but it has these alternating like color bands almost
0: concentric rings. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's four
1: concentric rings, three big ones in the middle and then a gap and then a small one on the outside. And people saw these, these color alternations and, and it's clear when you look at it, it's not just segment identification for segment identification purposes alone. Right. Cause then you would expect, Mm -hmm. um, you know, more regular patterns probably, um, you know, binary patterns. And it's, it's much more random than that. And so then the next thought is, well, maybe they didn't want to just do, um, you know, something. Super simple because they wanted to make sure that they had uh, no rotational symmetry and maybe they need to be able to collect data from a much smaller portion. So if you can't see the whole thing, you know, maybe every intersection can be unique or, you know, if you have two intersections, you can uniquely identify uh, your position. Uh, but it turns out that they encoded a message and this is so cool, Trebinsk, uh, a user in our Discord chat, um, actually solved it on their own using some MATLAB code, and and we'll link to a screen cap of that. Um, and the MATLAB code is is really satisfying because you see exactly how it works. But then they also they built a very very nice looking uh, output. The MATLAB script that showed up in our Discord does not account for the outer ring, um, and that also was identified, uh, the the message in that was identified. So uh, in the show notes, we'll link to uh, Adam Seltzner's um, really nice visualization. Of course, Adam uh, is able to post something very nice as soon as people start figuring it out, because... His team had a lot of time to work on this graphic, but uh, I guess spoiler alert, if, if you want to go work on it yourself, um, absolutely pause the show and go do it. That's awesome. Um, but spoiler alert, the encoded message is dare mighty things. And then the latitude and longitude of JPL in Pasadena is is the outer ring. So each of the three inner rings is dare and then mighty and then things. Um was this as delightful to you guys as it was to me?
0: Uh yeah, I mean I thought it was awesome and I I can't say I that I expected it but it's it's exactly the kind of thing the JPL right. would do. So right. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go.
1: And it's it's worth pointing out this isn't the only uh, little easter egg that they had hidden that we didn't know about. You know, they always have all the calibration circles for the cameras on the on the top mm-hmm. deck of I the rover. Sorts. Fiducials. Yeah, good word. Um, but they also had um, a, a nice little like family bumper sticker kind of graphic <laughs> uh, that shows uh, all, the, all the rovers in a line is this nice pixelated graphical style. Just all these little tiny things that make me very happy.
0: Well, on the last rover, like when we think of Curiosity, I know that there was what... It was like JPL in Morse code in the tires, um, in these little gaps in the tires, right? Yes. So I guess they do have a history of doing these types of things. So yes. I guess, you know, mm-hmm. that's exactly what you would expect it.
2: Yeah, I, thi- I think they considered it for Perseverance, but they were like, nah, we really want to make sure we make like the best tires we
1: possibly
0: can. Yeah, <laughs> turns out <laughs> tires that's are that's important. That's right. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the family... Uh, bumper st- or you know, yeah, bumper sticker thing isn't actually pixelated. It just looked like that because of the low-resolution photos that I was looking at. It is actually nice and smooth. I really hope that they sell uh, this as a bumper sticker. Mm. Um, and like, I mean, I, I'm fine with updating it every every couple of years.
0: So I was looking at the um the pattern there, and so basically this code is really just binary, right? Specifically, it's just numbers, and the numbers correspond to letters. Because yeah. I was looking it, at it, working it out, and it seems it, to be the case.
2: Yeah, so when you asked, you know, how did you f- feel about this, I thought it was cool, but then I was more like I was perplexed exactly how you go from that code to letters. And I, I couldn't find any kind of – if I just did a Google search for kind of how to convert – any uh, Google search for the binary alphabet – and I could not find any that was seven digits uh-huh. long. You know what I mean? Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And so I yeah, I it basically because they all start with zero one, it seems that they truncated both of those, but then that still leaves you with not as many. And so I, I don't know. I I this this isn't really good radio, but like <laughs> I, I've been able to basically take like, you know, if if according to this one I'm looking at right here, it's zero one, zero zero zero, zero zero one for A, mm-hmm. but then for JPL, it's like you take that, you ignore the first zero, you take the one and make it a zero, and then it matches. And then all of them match if you do that little... You remove the leftmost one and you change the one to a zero.
0: I thought, I mean, like I only tried a few letters, but I thought that basically you could discount the first like zeros because that's kind of like anything, you know, before the decimal point, if you will, because it's a zero, right? So you would start with the one. And so if you have like, you know, one, zero, one, zero, zero, that's the letter T, like as it turns out.
2: Maybe it was an engineering like reason that they had to have seven segments per letter to get it to fit or something. I don't know. Because then why not just only use the last six digits? In it because the first two digits among the eight are zero, one every time. So something like D, which is one, two, three, four, on, off, off. But in this alphabet, it's zero, one, one, two, three, one, zero, zero. Right.
0: right. But I think it's because you're looking at the binary for the alphabet and not the binary for numbers, which represent the letters, which is to say, you know, how like, you know, like the like the letter D is what the fifth letter in the alphabet. Ah. They're all numbers and just a certain numbers correspond to letters.
2: I see. And that that does work, except I guess in the true binary alphabet, they start with a zero one just to maybe flag it as this should really be a letter and not a number.
1: Yeah. So the the issue all comes down to the phrase binary alphabet, like how, how do you encode uh, a 26 bit number, right? Because that's a, essentially what, what words are. Um, how do you encode those 26 different values in X number of bits? Um, and so, you know, ASCII is one way to do it. Um, just numeric, you know, putting them in, in order is another way to do it. So in this case, um, what made things a little harder is the fact that it looks like it's actually, um, 10 bit chunks, but since they had so many segments, they just spread them out so that it's, so that there are gaps mm-hmm. that don't actually encode anything. Um, and the fact that they kept those as white actually helped some people. Uh, put, put it together.
2: Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah. So it, it, the, the issue here is really picking a start point, um, picking your, the length of each, uh, uh, the length of each binary word, uh, and, uh and figuring out the, the right way to arrange things.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing that the reason why it's 7 is because there's some character in there that requires all 7. I don't see which one that is, but there might be one.
2: I don't know, maybe when you get to the numbers in the outermost bit, then you do want to care about the... Because uh, it looks like the 118, for example, starts with an on, so that makes it different
1: from every other... Right, oh,
2: true. It's going yeah, 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 yeah. As it spirals out. So that might be it. The 118 might be the reason why they needed the, uh, the
1: Yep. And then, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's the, I think the 10 bits on the outside. Or they needed the 10 bits for each one on the outside because they get up to like 118.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, that's really bad radio. <laughs> but it's, yeah. so, it's, it's, but that was
2: fun for like yeah. me, at least <laughs> now I have an understanding.
1: So I'd love to hear what you guys' uh, favorite part of the video was. But I think for me, it has to be the, the divert. I mean, like seeing the, um, the sky crane pitch over, slide sideways. And then pitch back to vertical. I mean, like it it, it looks so solid and so clean cut. Um, it is is just incredibly impressive and it, it makes me feel happy because it's you're you're seeing the intention of the code. Uh, like, like that software is doing a thing and it's easily readable just from the video. Like you look at it and you know what it's doing. It's not fuzzy and ambiguous. Like a lot of, a lot of this kind of output is, you know, cause it's, you know, getting buffeted by wind or whatever. Um, and you just look at it and you go, Oh, okay. We're pitching over. All right. We're done with our, uh, translation. Now we're going down It just it was very good.
0: It was a very big diversion, which is why I think it was, you know, so noticeable. Yeah. That was a hard bank, pretty much, and I was like, "Oh, is that what that is?" Because yeah, because I saw it, and I was like, "Is that their actual, you know, avoidance maneuver?" Because that was a big maneuver that they just made, or am I seeing something else? But apparently, that's what exactly what that was, and so it very much worked.
1: I don't have confirmation that that is, but I'm I'm assuming that's what it
0: is. Just after it stopped, I did hear someone call out "Terrain relative navigation maneuver complete" mm-hmm. or something like that. So, yep. yeah, that was very impressive. The video overall so good compared to curiosity and what we got there you know which was obviously a lot less this was just like they had cameras everywhere and they were recording these weren't little snapshots they were you know it was just like full-on video and i was kind of mm-hmm. i was kind of blown away by that
2: and when when the cables are severed and the descent stage zips away that was mm-hmm. that was i think the craziest thing that ever and right everyone on the internet was calling like posting pictures of skynet from terminator of course <laughs> but like that that did really look like like I could, I wasn't prepared for seeing it look like that.
0: <laughs> so that is your perseverance news for this week. I'm sure we'll have more next week, but now let's move on to Dynetics. Uh, they have completed their preliminary design review for their HLS lander. The Dynetics concept is the one that I think that we're all pulling for. And I think most mm. people are. So, um, yeah, let's get an update on that.
2: So just to kind of right, get everyone back up to speed, right? So in 2019. Uh, right. NASA gave these, uh, next step awards, uh, $45.5 million to 11 different companies to develop prototypes for, you know, a human landing system. And then, uh, it was last year, uh, I think in April. Uh, next step two awards were given out and this was basically where nasa this was the big news right nasa selected uh blue origin dynetics uh and spacex right where blue origin was leading a a, a very large team and and dynetics also has its own kind of like number of other you know subcontractors working for them including i think sierra nevada is part of them as well if i remember correctly but um the the upshot is that you know this was a much bigger you know uh just shy of a billion dollars uh between the three companies Uh, and this was to um basically develop and demonstrate you know a lander uh and then finally the there'll be you know another set of awards after down selecting the two uh where they'll actually go and uh solicit for uh, the landing services itself. And so um, this uh, down selection uh, decision should be coming any week now. So that's kind of what the the, the real news is now, um, because, I mean, we're going to see basically which of the two, because they're all about competition, right? They want them, right? This is, you know, these are commercial landers and... we. We've always had, you know, a commercial component to, you know, our space program even back in Apollo days. But, uh, this is kind of, I don't know, more commercially than ever, it seems,
0: <laughs> especially
2: yeah. in the case where something like SpaceX, where, you know, it's their wholly developed, uh, uh, rocket is also their landing system, right? Or at least the upper stage Starship. And so, um it should have been announced by now but evidently they extended the contracts uh uh till the end of april so that way they can make this a bit smoother because they're running a little bit behind uh the hls uh, system uh you know uh, hasn't gotten as much funding as they wanted about one quarter of what nasa requested and so um the upshot is, is that, you know, keep an eye out in the coming weeks for uh, us finding out which between the three, Dynetics, Blue Origins, National Team, and SpaceX, ends up, uh, you know, actually getting, uh, moving forward. And um, I can just say right now, my expectation is Dynetics, actually, I, I don't know, I was going to say Dynetics and the National Team, but... With blue Origins uh, new uh well, I don't know anyway I'm, I'm still going to say that it's going to be them. I don't think SpaceX is going to make this cut. Do you guys want to uh, put in your bets <laughs> no, <laughs> and we'll see I, who's, uh, who's right and wrong:
1: Yeah, I mean my my prediction is that um, SpaceX will get uh, will, will not make the next down selection, and then ultimately it'll be the national team that wins. I, I don't think that we're going to see Alpaca mm-hmm. on the moon, but i I really I want dynetics to <laughs> to win the final contract
0: but so basically you think that the national team mm. will win so you, okay because i thought that right and that's
2: why sam i caught myself because i i just remember leading to blue origin kind of getting some negative press uh with their delays on new glenn but you're right that the 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 whole thing about the uh, the the national team right it seems to be the most legacy of them all you know what i mean like certainly more than spacex and even it definitely dynetics, is yeah. which has been around for a while but the national team has a lot of the kind of well-known, right. Lockheed, I think is part of them, uh, Mm -hmm. for example. And so, yeah, they've kind of got that going for them.
1: And, and to be clear, like it's not, these aren't exclusive partnerships. There are people who are contracting on multiple teams, but it's, you know, the forerunners are, are more exclusive.
2: Yes. So Sam makes a good point, which is kind of where I caught myself on, uh, being a little more skeptical about blue origins national team, but he's but Sam is highlighting that the uh, the national team isn't meant to be dependent on uh, New Glenn, and that's why the modules are all so narrow. And so you get this very tall tower of a thing, uh, ultimately. And so very different than uh, Dynetics design, which is kind of so low-slung. Mm-hmm. That's kind of one of the best uh, aspects. Yeah, well, uh,
1: the, Dynetics, Dynetics isn't dependent on a certain launcher either, are they? Because they... It is low slung, but it's just because they launch it sideways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, national team isn't isn't dependent on New Glenn.
2: And, and Dynetics can specifically fit on you know both SLS or Vulcan Centaur if they were to do uh, commercial missions. Yeah. So I mean, I and, and I'm still hopeful. I mean, certainly for this round, Dynetics is looking good. They're testing hardware, the the landers, main engines, and RCS thrusters um, at their own uh, test site and Marshall. And uh, they've also you know uh, more recently have completed their uh, preliminary design review, right And so that's uh, uh, a really big it, it kind of I don't know lends confidence towards their you know development you know they're 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 all within the requirements uh, uh, of the HLS system within uh, acceptable risk margins, and you know they're within cost and schedule constraints. and so this is actually the fourth. Uh, review that the company had mm-hmm. completed over the past, you know, uh, about a year. And so I think with all that kind of going for them, I think they'll, they're, they're looking pretty good for getting this, uh, uh making it to the next round, but uh, we'll see ultimately what happens.
0: So you both are expecting that the national team will win just because, you know, they are the big kids on the playground.
2: Not me. No, no, I'm oh, still not you. Okay. I, I'm thinking they'll, they're, they'll make the down select. But my, my prediction for who ultimately lands on the moon, I think uh I think both of them will. I think Dynetics will first and then National Team will, you know, a year or two later.
1: Oh, you you think that they will select two HLS contractors? I do. That's really interesting.
0: I can't remember but did they specifically point out that they were not necessarily going to select just one because I think maybe they did but I don't exactly, remember now.
1: Exactly.
2: Exactly. and 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 that's kind of I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and you know, there's there's this idea that they really want to have this competition and so once you down select one, the competition evaporates. And so if the idea is for a longer term, more sustained lunar mm-hmm. ecosystem, you don't want, okay, here's the one that's going to do our, first, you know, our Artemis 3 landing, you know, and that's kind of, that's that. You know what I mean? Uh, if you want to keep it going, then keep them in competition. And two seems to be the number they like, you know, if you consider a commercial crew.
1: That's really interesting. And I wonder if NASA has the funding to be able to do that 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 would be really fantastic um I don't know you, who knows the uh the new administration may you know want to prioritize space I tend to doubt it just because of the way that the Trump administration really dumped a lot of money into the moon. And so, you know, even if we just talk, you know, think about uh, what's that statistical effect returning to regression to the mean. mean. Yeah. Like even just even just by that. um, But also, you know, Democratic administrations generally put less money into space, don't they?
2: Yeah, Uh, I have
0: no idea, actually.
2: (laughs) Biden's in particular seems to be more interested in like Earth observation, Earth monitoring, because that way, you know, you can say you're doing something towards mitigate, uh, understanding climate change even better so we can.
1: Yeah. And, and, and one way that. or the other, like it's really the legislative branch, it's Congress that has control over the money. And so for the president to have any effect over it, um, the, the president isn't spending, uh, you know, budget slots, you know, like this, this fixed budget, the way that Congress is what, what the president is doing is spending cachet, um, you mm-hmm. know, you push, you can only push for so many things and the more things you push for the less impact your desires have. I, I I think this is the way this works. I think, I think this is, is fairly clear. So with all of the other things that truly desperately need attention, uh, right now, it seems like space is going to be really quickly, not a priority, um, of the Biden administration. And so, you know, where, the president goes there. Follows Congress, um, to to some extent, you know. If if the president isn't pushing for it, Congress to some extent won't won't actually put the money into it. So I don't know. We'll we'll see. It'd be it'd be a, a wonderful surprise, though.
0: So now let's translate on over to a third topic. This is a big show today. So NASA's human spaceflight program and safety. So you have some information on that, huh, Dennis.
2: Yeah. So this will be a, a quicker news item, but there, you know, has been you know some talk. Uh, uh, coming from, well, essentially this, uh, aerospace safety advisory panel or, uh, ASAP. Uh, I, I don't care if it's supposed to be, uh, uh said out <laughs> al- loud. I mean, that just lends itself so perfectly, but, um, essentially, right? It's, it had it made some recommendations regarding, you know, human space flight. So kind of, you know, related to not so much to HLS, but this is more, uh, well, actually, no, it is related to both HLS as well as commercial crew. And so that's why I thought it's kind of a nice, uh, ties everything together uh related to human spaceflight and so it's uh, uh this panel uh their most recent report um and it's headed by uh, sandy magnus uh the uh, one and only incomparable sandy magnus totally awesome <laughs> astronaut and mm-hmm. uh you know uh essentially um i don't know what going through there you know there's a lot of uh it, it seemed to be saying the same thing over and over again in like five different ways. But the upshot seems to be that there's some concerns about the, uh, sort of decisions being made regarding, uh, the, the, the NASA's workforce as well as the infrastructure related to HLS and commercial crew. One strong recommendation coming from them, though, is to have more strategic top-down guidance. They're, they're worried right now that the, uh, there's big decisions being made at individual NASA centers, um, without enough communication uh between them as a whole because I, I mean it's a gigantic right sprawling organization and so as a as a result though, you can imagine that you have some responsibilities that get blurred because you know you're you're working a, a little more siloed and thus you know risk can creep in that way and so that's that's uh one important idea there but you know at this point you know hls is still you know years away even uh when you're as optimistic as you can get but when it comes to commercial crew right we've seen spacex has already flown and you know those you know their missions so far have gone, you know, wonderfully. Uh they still have what uh, crew two that needs to or sorry, is it it's still crew one? Um it was, you know, they had the um Doug Hurley and Bob Bank in uh the demo crew and so but now 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 crew one is still on orbit and doing a great job hanging out there uh, i think they'll be coming home in a couple of weeks when uh, crew two then goes up there but um uh, really this is more about uh boeing and uh starliner and of course uh the issues that starliner had right so remember starliner had their uh orbital flight test uh uh what was it uh december of 2019 uh, i remember i was home for the holidays visiting my family boy and, is that um, long ago huh right yeah that's <laughs> two Decembers ago. And, you know, they got, they got on orbit, but they did not make it to the, uh, space station. Right. And so this was an uncrewed, you know, uh, flight test. And, um, there was a, I'll say a litany of issues, um, that ultimately all stemmed kind of, uh, or the culprits seemed to be, uh, essentially their, uh, safety culture. And also, you know, uh, way they kind of did oversight so there's was was a ton of software problems there was something that potentially could have been dangerous had there been crew on board where uh the the um the capsule might not have been the spacecraft might not have been able to get away uh, to clear the uh, i think the upper stage was that the issue Uh, i think it was
1: recontacting the service module
2: oh thank you yeah right yeah the service module, thank you, uh, that it would have had the risk of recontacting that as well. And so, um, right, software was kind of the buzzword. There were so many issues uh, related to the, the, the software. So you should, you should check that out. We had actually, um, uh, Emery uh, Stagmer came on the show and gave mm-hmm. us a great little, uh, not great little, but he just gave us a great, you know, rundown on uh, what happened. It had to do with the communication between the rocket and the spacecraft and all this good stuff. And so the upshot is, right, <laughs> like Ben, with your surprise, a lot of time has passed. And, you know, to be fair, Boeing has uh, completed 95 percent of the recommendations that NASA uh, uh, gave them. Uh, but uh, NASA, part of this uh, sort of review is that NASA, you know, is supposed to take action on a sort of uh, holistically addressing Boeing safety culture. And so this uh, was called the, uh, you know, it's everything's got to be an acronym, the Organizational Safety Assessment or OSA. And, you uh, What's, you know, this is all older stuff right now, but what's in the news is that this OSA, this uh, assessment has been postponed um, uh, nominally due to COVID, although uh, some people kind of rightfully wondering, you know, aren't you able to still sort of, you know, remotely assess people, especially since a big part of this is going to be interviewing individual employees, you know, everybody from technicians to senior managers. And so with this delay, um, the the review is going to, the OSA review is going to take place after uh, the Orbital Flight Test 2, which is uh, the next uncrewed sort of repeat that, you know, Boeing, uh, I, 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 they said that they were going to just do this on their own, you know, that it was unprompted, but I'm pretty sure they probably knew that they would have to, given how uh, many issues that uh, the first uh, flight test had. And yep. so um, right now that is uh, coming up uh, in April. It's, it's currently scheduled for and then just you know longer term hopefully that'll go well hopefully everything will just come together smoothly and you know, you know fingers crossed and then we can have the starliner actually take crew up uh no earlier than september of this year so yeah
1: um i i heard some news that we might be seeing uh, another um NASA astronaut flying on a soyuz and i, I I believe it's all just down to not getting commercial crew up and running as quickly as, as necessary. It's huh. kind of, I it's having, kind of a bummer. Of yeah. hmm. Uh-huh.
0: All right, this week let's do the three short and sweet as usual. What's the first one, Ben?
1: All right, a culprit has been identified for the failed Falcon 9 booster landing. Senior SpaceX advisor Hans Koenigsman announced that heat damage was responsible for the failed landing of a Falcon 9 booster during a recent Starlink launch. The incident is still being investigated, with the company, quote, close to nailing it down and correcting the problem. After two dozen successful booster landings for the company, this core, then on its sixth flight, missed the drone ship altogether, with video showing the engines not shutting down normally after its entry burn. Konigsman remains confident that the company's boosters can be reused 10 times or more.
2: Next up blockchain transaction tested on orbit. GOM Space and JP Morgan successfully tested the first bank led tokenized value transfer in space. Using the GOM X4 Satellites LEO, the transfer was executed on a blockchain network established between two satellites. The GOM X4 Satellites have proven to be useful for rapid on-orbit tests of various types, given their high reconfigurability. This breakthrough transaction opens the door for a decentralized blockchain network among satellites in which communication with the Earth is not necessary.
0: Finally, Relativity is going reusable. So Relativity Space, known for its goal of launching the world's first 3D-printed rocket into orbit, is now aiming to use its additive manufacturing expertise to create a fully reusable launch vehicle. This rocket, called Terran R, will be capable of delivering around 20,000 kilograms to orbit, putting it on par with the Falcon 9. CEO Tim Ellis said that 3D printing will allow them to design both first and second stages that are capable of multiple flights, a feat that would otherwise not be possible. There has not been any timeline as to when Terran R will fly, but hardware is already being manufactured and tests are being conducted.
1: Okay, stand by.
0: We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections. We have a couple of genuine corrections. Uh, so what is the first one, Ben? I think that one you can address and I'll take the second yeah. one because that was, that was my bet. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Hartvick, uh, wrote in by email and, um, th- this isn't, I wouldn't consider this a cor- correction because I, I knew exactly what they were talking about, but, um, I, I agree. Oh, is that you, Hartvick? Uh, Hartvick is in the chat and just, uh, popped up his, uh, webcam <laughs> gave me an eyebrow. Okay. So Harvick wants to clarify that, um, <laughs> that ingenuity, uh, has, uh, six off sensing for attitude. Um, and so I was talking about, um, an accelerometer and the, how it's just a cell phone class accelerometer. Harvick wants to point out that, um, it's, it's, going to be a a full six DOF suite with a gyro as well. And I actually, in the show notes, I had the word inclinometer, which um, is another name for a gyro in this instance. Uh, And I I totally didn't say it. So yes, it's worth clarifying. This is six DOF sensing, not just three DOF sensing. Um, And then uh, another thing that Harvick said that I thought was actually really interesting was um, pointing out that uh, here on earth, um, you can't just use, um, an accelerometer and a gyro to do, um, all of your knowledge, your, your position knowledge, um, because you get, uh, yaw, translation, and, height drift as well as three degrees of rotational drift. And, uh, on earth, we tend to correct those with slower but higher fidelity, um, types of sensors like magnetometers, GPS, uh, and, uh, 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 pressure sensors. Um, and on Mars, those don't work so well. Uh, magnetometers are right out. Uh, GPS is possible, but um, not currently implemented. And pressure sensors, I have a feeling that even though there is atmospheric pressure, I think that since everything is lower pressure, um, you get a lower gradient um, to uh, to test against, so you get lower pressure resolution. Um, but doing uh, optical feature tracking and a, a, a laser distance sensor that really allows you to do some robust uh, drift correction. And, and I think that's uh, a very good thing to point out that um, that I, I didn't talk about. So thank you for writing in.
0: And then another correction. This one was something that I had said. So I actually misspoke last week. So we got a correction from Ben Hallert, and this was a uh, regarding last week, this week in spaceflight history. And at some point I said, and I do think I, you know, I, like I actually do recall saying that the NVSAT, uh, the satellite that I was talking about last week was actually the largest satellite in orbit with the exception of Hubble. Um, but he pointed out that there are actually several others. Um, and that's true. But I do think I did correctly state like at the very beginning of that segment, that the NVSAT is the largest European Earth observation satellite. So that part is true, but it is not the largest satellite full stop.
2: Oh, sorry. I think you said civilian, right? Which which is still legit, but I think that was, right. that was the term that you used.
0: The largest is civilian, or I believe European as well because um, there are some other larger ones, but they're not European, so if you you know consider that. But yeah, so I found a list actually, and I think I actually had access to this or that I had looked at it last week, and somehow I missed it because there's actually four other vehicles, or actually more because um, there were some constellations there. So, just a quick correction. Yeah, so besides Hubble, which is, you know, larger than Envisat. There was also uh, KH-11, which was a a reconnaissance satellite uh, for the National Reconnaissance Office. There might have been more than one of those, actually, but uh, there's definitely more than a couple of the Proton, which was a Soviet cosmic ray in particle detecting satellite. There were four of those, so those were larger, and I'm not sure why they needed to be so massive, but they were. Um, Then there was the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. That was not an Earth observation satellite in neither was the previous one actually. So again, you have to take all these caveats into consideration. But the Compton satellite, um, that was at 16,000 kilograms, uh, and you know, the MV set was actually half of that. Uh that was quite a bit bigger. Then there was Lacrosse, which was another Uh, Reconnaissance Office Constellation and there were a series of those and those weighed in at 14,500 kilograms. So yeah, there's six or seven or eight uh, like other satellites that were larger plus, you know, Hubble. So I got that part wrong. So yeah, NVSAT, uh, still the largest civilian European Earth observation satellite if you consider all of those uh, little qualifiers that is a true statement. It doesn't have to be European but it is the largest civilian Earth observation satellite.
1: (laughs) That's a a lot of qualifiers.
0: <laughs> Let's move on then to This Week in Space Flight History. Got a couple of winners, Ben Hallert and Chubba Dracosi, just those two. That's it. So I guess good clue. And the, and the clue was once you pop, the fun don't start. Yeah,
1: I like the fact that we, we had to go back to like our core – uh, this week in space flight history, guessers to, to get two correct answers like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we, we <laughs> stripped away everybody but that core. All right. This week in space flight history is the 5th of March, 1999. It was the launch of the WIRE space telescope uh not the wise space telescope i think every mm-hmm. single person uh working on this show plus uh, at least i think ben <laughs> hallard also said uh wise by accident i think i think all three of us um at, yeah. at one point or another uh, confuse the two. All right. So, uh, wire is the wide field infrared explorer. It was launched on a Pegasus XL into polar orbit. Y- y'all know, I'm a fan of air launched rockets, like who isn't. Um, and yeah. so it's cool to see, you know, Pegasus show up in my, uh, in, in my research. Um, Wire was intended. I, I almost said Wise again. Uh, Wire was <laughs> uh, intended to do a four-month-long infrared whole-sky survey. Um, it was going to be observing at twenty-one to twenty-seven micrometers and nine to fifteen micrometers, and uh, it was going to be looking at starburst galaxies and luminous proto-galaxies. I think we actually talked about. Um, both, uh, proto galaxies and starburst galaxies a month or two ago. Um, so I'm not going to. I gonna definitely go
2: remember, um, it, actually it was post starbursts if I remember correctly. Okay. But okay. it's a similar idea. So this is. When they're not yet post, <laughs> they're still starting. <laughs> when they're not yet post, <laughs>
1: okay. So, uh, Wire uh, is best known for the fact that it never got to do any science. Um, and initially, I had the title of this week in, uh, of this segment as being the failed launch, but uh, Wire ended up not being a failure, and we'll we'll talk more about that, but but first let's talk about the issues that it faced so it used um solid hydrogen um to cool its its main instrument and i think it's really cool that it's solid hydrogen instead of liquid helium
0: you can make hydrogen solid i didn't uh-huh. even know you could do that
1: uh-huh yeah but, but notably, you can't do it for very long. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, this vehicle actually has sort of an interesting time limiting factor, um, in that the hydrogen tends to melt. And so while it's uh, on the ground, before it's been loaded up onto Stargazer, the, um, L1011, um, that launches Uh, Pegasus. It can be, you know, refrigerated. Basically, they pump, uh, liquid helium, uh, through the cryostat, um, to keep that hydrogen from melting. But once you, once you load it onto the airplane, you don't get that kind of support. And, um, it's kind of interesting that they were able to launch this on a Pegasus because if they launched it on, uh, a traditional, uh, ascent vehicle, you could have that cooling uh, way up till very, very late in the launch sequence. But because it's launched on a Pegasus, you know, that you're going to fly around in the air for a while before you're able to actually release the, the vehicle. So they have about nine hours that they can survive without the ground cooling equipment. So to, to maximize life on orbit, once they get up to orbit, they open, um, a, a vent that Is connected to the secondary tank. Um, and I was not able to totally pin this, uh, this flow down just because it was something that I put off to the very end of my research. And then we, um, wound up running out of time, but, but there's the cryostat, which has a tank, the primary tank, I believe. And there's a secondary tank. Um, and you transfer the, um, the hydrogen, to the, the gaseous hydrogen stays in the primary tank or the, the solid hydrogen t- stays in the primary tank. The gaseous hydrogen gets vented off into the secondary tank and then is released into space. Um, mm. but that's what I'm not a hundred percent sure of. But the, the key here that's actually really important is that you have two vents, a primary and a secondary. And even though you're going to, Um, dump a reasonable amount of energy into the phase change, um, the real cooling power comes when you release that helium out into space. And so as they're ascending into orbit, you're boiling or you're you're melting off. It's actually probably subliming, I'm assuming. Uh, You're subliming off hydrogen and then you're still gaining heat. And once you get into space and you can do that vent, um, you stop putting as much energy into melting or or subliming the hydrogen. And so you kind of reach this, this steady state faster where... You can survive longer with a a fixed amount of of, uh, hydrogen. Um, It it might also be just the fact that hydrogen in a high-pressure environment is going to sublime faster than hydrogen in a low-pressure environment. Uh, I I don't understand all the specific mechanics here, but they they get to orbit, and one of the first things they do is open the secondary tank vent so that they can preserve as much of this limited resource as possible. Interestingly enough, they had a ground station pass just 20 minutes after separation um, from Pegasus's upper stage, Um, and as soon as they got that um, ground station pass, they commanded uh, the secondary vent. Uh, pyro to fire and, and open up that vent. Now, this would have happened anyway. They, they just happened to be able to command it a little earlier. The vehicle would have, would have done it itself, um, if it hadn't have received a command. Um, so they, they popped the vent open while they still had, um, ground comms. And when they did that, they saw the attitude control rates increase. Basically, uh, the vehicle experienced some thrust and it, um, had to push harder against that thrust to maintain its attitude that's totally normal that that appeared totally normal because that's what you expect when you do uh this first this first blow off vent right the hydrogen vent is intended to be non-propulsive because you're trying to point this vehicle in a very particular direction but you get uh, a decent amount of hydrogen coming out it's it's going to apply some off off axis thrust and and uh, um push you around and make you point in different directions so that's 20 minutes after separation um then 90 minutes after separation, they got a second ground station uh, pass. And um, this time they commanded um, the instrument electronics to come online. Um, They commanded the secondary vent to open a second time. Uh, I don't know if it's just the way that they have these commands set up or if they just really wanted to make sure that it worked. Um, And then they also commanded the primary vent to open. The Instrument electronics packages called WIE, the wire instrument electronics. Um, and they command, when they commanded it on, they checked the cryostat temperatures. They saw elevated temperatures, but they weren't exceedingly high and they kind of, uh, fit well within their expected temperatures, um, for sort of recovering from, uh, the launch. But while that temperature didn't seem out of whack, uh, the, Attitude rates definitely were out of whack. In fact, um, just 90 minutes after separation, the, the ground controllers thought it was pretty clear that they were, um, almost about to experience a control loss. They were, they were pretty close to having a big issue. Um, as they got, uh, subsequent tracking passes, um, they found that the temperatures indeed did get to, uh, levels that were, um, pretty nasty. They, they were just not gonna, uh, not gonna be able to survive, uh, these kind of temperatures. And the attitude rates, even more importantly, were getting, um, more, at, or fat, faster and faster. And it, it turns out that they actually, um, the vehicle actually ended up overwhelming the control mechanisms. They had RCS thrusters as well as magnetotorkers, um, and, and the control systems were totally overwhelmed and things started spinning. Uh, in fact, it ended up spinning, I believe, uh, around 60 RPM. Um, so a revolution a second. That's, that's too fast. <laughs> um, what, what's really cool is that we figured out what was wrong very early on, even though we didn't understand the cause. When the WIE was uh, was powered up during that second ground station pass, one of the things that it does is it actually takes an image, um, and it, it's able to take an image at the focal plane, I believe. Um, so it, I, I think there might actually be a hardware configuration that changes, but it, it's basically able to to check the CCD. Um, but in any event, no matter how this image is taken, it was taken and it showed a lot of light. <laughs> Um, there's a cover that, um, is supposed to be on the front of the spacecraft to protect the instruments and to keep the cryostat nice and cold. And that's super important. The way that, uh, the way that wire, um, begins its life is by pointing at earth, sort of uh, a safety mode, not, not quite, you know, a full on safe mode where you're trying to recover from an issue, but it's, you know, while you're doing this, um, this checkout phase, you want to eliminate all the uh, variables that you can. So you pick a, a single orientation, which in this case is pointed straight down at Earth. And that does cover protects you from the heat that Earth is constantly giving off right its earth is being heated by the sun you have an ir instrument it's really good at soaking up infrared uh, energy when when they took this photo they could see that even though the photo wasn't um you know focusing on earth it's not like they could see trees uh, or license plates they could see that there was more light coming in through the aperture than they expected um, further evidence was provided by NORAD. Uh, NORAD actually, you know, did their tracking, uh, their, their radar tracking, uh, thing that they do. And, uh, they actually could see two, uh, two bodies. They could actually see the dust cover, uh, floating instead of being attached to wire. So pretty early on, they they knew what the problem was. Um, the dust cover had come off too early. It had overheated uh, the cryostat and the cryostat boiled off all of its hydrogen. It's, it's very unfortunate. Uh, the, the spin is due to all of this hydrogen boiling off and being vented overboard. And that kills your, your science mission. You, you don't get to do science with this instrument. And I will talk about the science that they were able to do with this vehicle. But first I wanted to talk about this failure. Um, and it, it makes me really happy. Just on a personal level, uh, I started taking a circuit design, uh, yeah, a, a circuit design class um, MIT is fantastic. They put a lot of video lectures and and course materials up online for free. And I decided, you know what? I I would really like to learn more about circuits. I don't need to be an electrical engineer, um, but I do enough electronics projects that I I kind of just do blind, um, hoping I can correctly calculate the resistor that I need to keep from blowing out uh, an LED. And you know, and I mostly just follow s- pre built schematics and kind of I can adapt them a little bit, but I don't really know what I'm. Doing. So I wanted to learn more. And one of the really interesting things about this particular class is that it starts off by talking about abstraction and how the real world uh, follows physical laws. Um, and we can do all of the design works, specifically talking about electronics, but we can do all the design work that we need to from base principles. Uh, if we really want um, to design any electrical circuit, w- we can do so um, from very, very fundamental laws of physics. But instead, uh, we choose abstractions that are handy for the problem that we're working on. And we build higher and higher order abstractions the higher up we go. And, and that allows us to get all the way up to, you know, video games, right? right. Uh, yeah. Video games, just the code that they run on is running on multiple levels of, of abstraction. And that code, uh, even the, the basic machine level, uh, you know, bare metal code is still an abstraction. It's multiple abstractions away from the physical laws that are actually making those uh, voltage potentials show up and making electrons move hither, thither, and yon. And, and that idea of abstraction actually is kind of what killed wire, believe it or not. So uh, the investigation board discovered that there was an issue with the FPGA uh, that actually um, implemented the logic control for the PyroBox uh, electronics. So an FPGA is a field programmable gate array. Um, You can think of it as, as a microcontroller. And so what happened is that This particular FPGA that they picked has, uh, you know, a bunch of flip-flops in it and the state of those flip-flops is not static. Um, the amount of time that the FPGA goes without power actually has a a direct effect on the initial state of those flip-flops when it is powered up. That's basically to say that this FPGA is not a non-volatile memory. Uh, bank, right? This isn't a chip that you can set values in, power it down, and then expect those values to be present when you power it back up. So th- this seems like a fairly obvious uh, quality of an FPGA, um, but because of some interesting abstractions that the designers were using, it didn't seem to be a problem. Mike in the chat says ah, flip flops that aren't reset to known values at power on. Here's the thing. They did go set uh all of these values. The problem is the timing uh at which those those uh value sets occurred. So in the lab, they were doing what were characterized as soft starts where they have a very nice clean power supply that can ramp up uh, power over a reasonably long period of time. And all all of their testing was done with these very nice uh, power supplies on orbit. They did not bring a power supply along. Instead, they had a battery and a bunch of relays. And so these relays ramp up power almost instantly, right? I mean, um, basically relays arc and that's, you know, um, the next best thing to instantaneous um, voltage change. And when we say voltage, like in this case, we're talking about a lot of voltage. Um, the electronics box received 28 volts. So the the FPGA and the crystal oscillator that provided timing uh, both ran on five volts, uh, you know, a five volt uh, logic circuit. Um, and so when the box was provided with 28 volts of power, everything inside the box that ran at 28 volts got power instantly. Everything that ran at five volts got power slower as, um, as the voltage converters, um, you know, slowly came online and the timescales that we're talking about here are minuscule, but they were long enough to matter. The, uh, the FPGA did a thing called a synchronous reset, um, where it I, I think in this case, it's, it's saying that it assumes that the entire box is coming online at once. Um, and that's what they designed for. But the FPGA's, um, value set routines or, or setting the, the, uh, the values of these flip-flops doesn't happen until the oscillator is ticking, which makes sense. You know, we, we have, uh, this timing, uh, that we want to be able to follow. Um, and because the logic voltage took longer to come up to five volts, or in other words, took longer to get to the point where the oscillator could start ticking over the FPGA's initial flip-flops, flip-flop states really, really mattered because that's what the, you know, the actual electrical logic, um, ended up being based on for, just a hot second. And those, uh, logic states weren't where they should have been. Um, for both the arm and fire signals, we really want those to be off when the system starts up. <laughs> and, uh, quite <laughs> evidently, they weren't. So, oh, and I actually have it in my notes. The, the other components that were running at the 28 volts, uh, were a FET and a couple of relays. Um, so a, an amplifier. Um, and some relays. Oh boy. <laughs> really sucks. Yeah. So here's, here's the, the real kick in the teeth. Even if they had used, um, a power supply that better replicated Uh, a battery and relays. They still might not have caught this issue, um, because, um, they weren't using real pyros in the lab. As you can imagine, it's not a great idea. Um, uh, to, to bring, uh, pyrotechnics into your laboratory. And so instead they used, um, a, a simulator. I I don't know the nature of the simulator. I'd actually love to go it and look it up. Um, but I imagine it's a box, uh, that you hook up to, uh, the terminals that your pyro should be, uh, hooked up to, and then it's got, um, a signal wire uh coming out and when it detects that a fire event has happened it you know sends either a signal pulse or maybe it has uh, some networking protocol and you know it's doing four wire or something i don't know but these simulators were good but they were the incorrect abstraction for this component in this particular situation. They actually didn't handle transient power surges the same way that actual pyros do. The actual pyros they used needed a much shorter burst of current in order to fire. And it sounds like um, these simulators were actually fairly smart, and they could actually give you different levels of event detection. Um, and in this case, the... Um, the investigation board found that uh, the simulators were not unambiguous in this situation. Um, they could have detected this transient power as a potential firing event, um, but it wasn't super clear that they had detected it that way. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things where they kind of were buried under um, multiple mistakes. And on the face of it, it all seems totally reasonable. I can't actually, uh, bring Pyras into my computer lab. So I'm going to use, uh, the simulator that has long heritage. And, you know, probably my boss, uh, told me to go requisition one, uh, and, and we had these on hand. They, Assume that their power supply was a, was a reasonable facsimile. And in a lot of cases, you do, you know, you, you have a power supply and you go, okay, let me just switch this on. There we go. And we're good to go. And it, you you have to pick your abstractions very, very carefully. And you have to have a lot of knowledge to be able to do that. And it's just, it's interesting the way that all these things lined up and kind of wound up with us losing. This, uh, this valuable science mission.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of putting it. You have to choose your abstractions wisely. I think that's what you said, right? Mm-hmm. That's uh, yep. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never heard it put quite that way, but yeah, that's absolutely true. And what's the more common or the more, I don't know, the, just the more prosaic way of putting that? Like you have to. Test what
1: you fly, fly what you test.
0: Yes, yes. There, yeah, <laughs> that's it.
1: Yeah, basically, test what you fly it is shorthand for, you know, abstractions are great, but you need to wipe all of your abstractions out and use the actual physics, right? (laughs) You need to actually bring the real physics into play. Yeah. And, and, the uh, investigation board was actually able to replicate this failure uh, in the lab. They, you know, went and did all the investigation and went, oh, I see the problem. And uh, they, they did actually replicate it.
0: Which is interesting because it can be replicated, you know, like mm-hmm. in the lab. So, yeah, I mean, right. you can do it. They just kind of didn't yep. want to is, is kind of what it seems like to me, you know.
1: Or, or didn't know how to. I don't, I don't know where the flaw yeah, lies. Yeah. So I saved the best bit for last. Let's get this sour taste out of our mouth um, and enjoy... Wire being excellent, so um, the main science instrument is a bust. But there's a guy uh, named uh, Derek Buzoski, I think, um, and he was a researcher um, at UCB, and he had been studying uh, stellar seism- seismology. I don't know why that wound up being such a difficult word. He was studying uh, stellar se- se- seismology, and he heard about this vehicle and he heard about the loss of the main instrument. And I don't, I genuinely would love uh, to get in touch with this guy and find out how he even knew that this was a possibility, but he found out, um, that the star tracker on board, um was actually a really good telescope in and of itself. Granted, it's a two-inch aperture telescope, um, but for some purposes, um Buzoski said that a two inch telescope can be better than a ten meter telescope on the ground. Um and, and the big thing here is time on the instrument. Um he like I said, I've been studying uh, stellar seismology and you, you do that by looking at brightness levels, basically. Um, but you have to do so. W- over very long periods because stars are so incredibly variable that to find these long period oscillations uh, you need to be able to collect huge amounts of data that are just impossible to do with, with ground-based telescopes that are, that are high demand. Uh, or, or, I suppose, uh, difficult to do with space-based te- maybe even more difficult to do with space-based telescopes uh, that are in high demand, right? And so he was able to get um, just months of data, um, using this tiny two inch telescope. And, and he ended up finding the perfect instrument for his means. He said that, um, that wire was fantastically good at pointing, um, and that the CCD in this star tracker was actually better, uh, than most star trackers use, or at least better than wire actually needed for, uh, its whole whole sky survey. And so he was able to get observations every 10 seconds lasting for months. Like how cool is that? And so he, he was able to make the first observations of stellar seismology. So star quakes in a cool star. This had been something that, um, that astronomers have been trying, been trying to do for 30 years, uh, was to see this in, in a particular type of star and nobody had been able to do it until he did. And he's actually uh, been praised as uh, initiating a new field uh, of astronomy that basically stellar seismology hadn't really gone anywhere um, until Buzoski got his hands on it. And one of, one of the cool side effects that, you know, this is really Dennis's uh, area of interest, not mine. Uh, but one of the really cool things, I mean, starquakes are awesome. Like, I'm not going to say that they're not. But one of the things that really resonated with me was because he was able to do these kinds of observations, he actually was able to, um, determine stellar mass without having a companion star. Um, just by looking at the variance in the brightness of a star, he was a- able to, uh, get, uh, derive the mass of the star without having to watch its period as it flew around a neighbor. So, so pretty cool. That's um, wonderful.
2: That, that is black magic to me. <laughs> those people because it's a lot of it's a lot of math
1: yeah D- dennis i would love to hear you chime in if you had uh any impressions about this this research that you'd like to share
2: you hit on all the cool stuff i mean yeah, yeah. like that's that's such a big deal right because you, you you don't have to rely on a companion and using uh kepler's laws you can just <laughs> go and uh and also it, it gives you you know you can suss out things about the you know the interior of you know the star and so that's always a if you google what stellar interiors look like or you take an astronomy 101 you see this very nice clean looking you know oh here's a radiative zone here's convective zone here's different parts and anatomy of a stars like this but it's so messy in reality and so using uh uh this uh astroseismology you're able to really uh get an idea of what's going on in the interior it's one of the only kind of ways we can probe the interior right you, you can do modeling but that's not empirical, right? Uh, if right. You do modeling. Uh, you can look for neutrinos, but that's really just for our sun. Um, and then, you, but if you do this uh, seismology, you can actually go and get an idea of what's happening on the interiors of all the different types of stars out there.
1: So, so Dennis, what what causes these you know super long period oscillations? What what's ringing the bell? I guess
2: I think the convection happening is what's okay. ringing the bell. You're seeing yeah, the, the the bulk motion of huge parcels of Stellar plasma working its way through the uh, the interiors.
1: So it's the it's like the acoustic ringing that is periodic, but the actual quakes themselves only happen when a when a cell happens to get big enough or line up with yeah, its so, neighbors.
2: so yeah, I, I gotta admit, I don't know exactly. Like, I guess the the quakes just have to do with just it being maybe just a a kind of turbulent environment, right? Because mm. remember, stars they they rotate differentially, and so. Mm. Uh, and on top of that, they also have their magnetic fields getting strung around. That's why you mm-hmm. get, like, you know, uh, the 11-year Six. solar cycle with the sun. Yeah. But if you – basically, they still kind of just have these different modes of pulsating where, like, you know, the whole star will pulse out and pulse back in, right? You know, have you ever heard of – um, what are they? Uh, Fourier modes? Mm-hmm. Like anything yeah. like that? Yeah. yeah. So so basically you have all the different modes. And so you have something as simple as it just pulsing in and out, you know, as one giant monolithic object. But then also, like, you know, it – squishes along some ax- uh, along one direction while elongating along the other and it can pulse and wiggle that way and so there's like all these different modes and uh yeah yeah we do it on our sun for sure Um uh, in fact our sun is the only one i think that you get the really really high resolution higher modes um mm. where you can see our sun is kind of wiggling in different ways i don't know how else to describe it other than Fourier modes are wiggling.
1: Uh, no, no wiggling. <laughs> but, I mean, w- as soon as you said, yeah, Fourier modes, I was like, oh, okay, Jell-O. Got it. Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> so awesome this week in spaceflight history. I think next week's going to be pretty awesome too. Okay, so next week it is the 9th through the 15th of March. And Dennis, what is the clue for that one?
2: Sure. So next week in 1986, the first stop on a road trip.
0: First stop on our road trip, and I do happen to know what you know this particular event is, and it's really cool. And I have to say um, I'm excited to hear about it because I didn't even know about it. Same here.
2: I'm looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> but I'm assuming that there are people out there who do know about it, and those who do, give us a tweet with the hashtag <laughs> this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Now on to upcoming spaceflight events, just two little things. What's the first one, Dennis?
2: Well, first up, we have the second of the uh, recent pair of spacewalks we talked about last week coming up. And so that'll be on March 5th, which is Friday. And so this is Spacewalk number 72 with Kate Rubens and Soichi Noguchi. And the uh, coverage will begin at 5.30 a.m. Eastern with the spacewalk scheduled to begin at 7 a.m. Eastern. Uh, It is also expected to last about six and a half hours.
0: The next up is on March 7th slash 8th, depending on exactly where you are, is the launch of a Falcon 9 with Starlink version 1.0. And this is the 20th launch. So this is the 20th batch of, what, 60-some satellites um, or at least in this case, it is 60 satellites. So do the math. There's, just, I don't know, whatever, a 1,000 of them or something. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so this is actually the 21st batch, but the 20th of the uh, the version 1.0s. And so this will be launching, as always, from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida from Slick 40. Um, and that will be at 0341 UTC on the 8th, but at 10.41 p.m. Eastern time. So that will be on the previous day. So, it, again, just depends on exactly where you are. Um, that will be late at night on the East Coast. But that's a good time to watch a rocket launch. All
1: right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: Let's deal with the show then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9am Pacific,
2: 12pm Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patch just t-shirts and hoodies you
1: can join our
2: discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com
0: all right so that's it we will see you all next week on orbit until then later
1: bye everybody see you.